Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Professor Thomas O'Gwin on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin School of Business and a research fellow for the Center for Brand and Product Management. His research focuses on the sociology of consumption, brands, advertising, branded entertainment, and visual communication. He's widely published and has had many influential publications in this area, uh, and his professional services ranges, his professional service ranges from being guest editor of the Journal of Marketing Research and other work with different journals in the field. Prior to joining the faculty at the University of Wisconsin, he taught at the University of Illinois, at UCLA, and at Duke University. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Well, you talk a lot about branding, and w- tell us what the concept of brand means in the context of marketing of products in the business world. Sure. Um, well, a brand is a, a vessel of popular meaning. It's um, it's important to distinguish it from a product, which is just a thing. Um, a brand has meaning. So soap is soap. Ivory is a brand. And brand a brand can have considerable value out there in the business world. Oh, enormous. Um, there's a lot of statistics on this, but um, only a tiny percentage of a lot of companies, Procter & Gamble, um, Coca-Cola, et cetera, are due to any kind of physical assets. Uh, the the value of their brands, the meaning, is what gives those companies their, their capitalization. Now, why is a brand so important for a company to establish and cultivate? Well, at a, at a basic level, it allows you to differentiate your offering from the, the generic offering. So uh, when Ivory was created, uh, there was just soap, and so it became... Uh, something that has much less, um, has more inelastic demand. I can charge a higher price and make profit. So if a random diet drink gets introduced, it'll be a whole different kettle of fish if it's a Diet Coke drink, for example. Oh, sure. And, it, you know, really large brands, successful brands, create barriers to entry for uh, other brands. So it, it it's very hard in a category like uh, soft drinks for an upstart brand because there's just so much um, history and muscle behind very established brands. So as the value of brands go around the world, where do food companies fit in? I think in the the inner brand, which is the company that is most relied on to rate them, I think in this year's list, two of the top 10, McDonald's and Coca-Cola, are in there. Coca-Cola is the number one brand in the world, and I think McDonald's is seventh so Coca-Cola, the most valuable brand in the entire world. Absolutely. And I can only imagine some of the ways that they've cultivated that over the years, but could you give us a few examples? Coke is a very smart company. They, they, uh, their history goes back uh, you know, into the 19th century. They were very quick to understand that um, they weren't just selling um, sugared water. They, they were selling meaning. They were early to adopt a, a style of advertising, um, uh, sort of a slice-of-life social tableau kind of way of thinking about creating a world into which to put their product. And so when um, the diet fiasco happened in the 80s, it, they, 
you know, they for just a moment confused a product and a brand, and people demanded to have uh, something that even in blind taste tests didn't taste as good but had incredible meaning. Interesting. Well, you've given uh, examples I've heard of what Coke did with Santa Claus and another about um, how they expanded their business in World War II. Yeah, this comes from uh, largely from a book, um, um, God, Coke, and Coca-Cola, I believe, um, and s- several other histories. But um, it is with Santa Claus, it, it's um, been shown that, you know, prior to Coca-Cola, um, uh, very uh, using Santa as an uh, advertising character a lot, that um, Santa was just about as often green as red. And, and if you even Google traditional Santas, you'll see a lot of green Santas. Coke uh, used Santa early, and Santa wears Coca-Cola red. They're very proud of that in Atlanta. Um, and in World War II, they did a wonderful job, uh, Robert Woodruff, who's their CEO, of of convincing the sugar rationing board that, that Coca-Cola should have sugar, but, but Pepsi and everyone else should not. And they um, had a lot, some of their sales force installed in the armed services as what were called Coca-Cola colonels or technical advisors so that they would um, get Coke to all the pro- uh, soldiers. Uh, at home and on the home front and, and in the war, they um, actually um, d- dragged these portable bottling plants across Europe. And I think prior to World War II, they were only in three or four countries. And after World War II, they're in 18 or 20. So that was an enormous expansion through the Huge. The I mean, period. World War II, and essentially their efforts made them a global company. So you've used the term commercial social reality. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, it's it's based on the idea that if you advertisers present the world in a very uh, particular way, they overrepresent some things, they underrepresent others, and they they're very um, to say they're gifted in how they present the world to be an understatement. They're very very good at this and. What we know now uh, from a lot of research is that how that vision of the world ends up in people's heads um, and that that people tend to have beliefs about the world outside their own milieu that is really constructed out of advertising material in many ways. So when you say this, the examples I think of in the food world, some happening right now and some in the past, strike me as being completely pertinent here, but let me know if if that's correct. Um, One would be having fast food for breakfast. I remember back when one of the two chains, Burger King or McDonald's, introduced, and this is, what, 20 more, more, many more years ago even, uh, introduced fast food for breakfast, and people thought they were crazy. That what a business, what kind of business model is that? Nobody would ever have fast food for breakfast, and now it's part of the landscape. And uh, now, now the Burger King is running a Whopper for breakfast campaign. That's you know basically making that thing not only to go to a fast food restaurant for breakfast, but you eat their highest calorie options for breakfast. Taco Bell uh, and other companies. Taco Bell has a fourth meal campaign designed to get people to eat late at night. 
Um, is this part of changing the social reality by retraining people on when they should eat and what they should eat at different meals? Oh, those are wonderful examples. Um, yes. I mean, we depend much more than we realize on external uh, media representations of what normal is. And uh, you, you change people's sense of what is accepted, normal, average, uh, by doing these things and repeating them and showing other people doing it, and over time, it normalizes it. So presumably, this could all get harnessed for social good, and people could develop a different social reality that would be consistent with long and healthy lives and things like that, but that's obviously not what's being done. Right, and, and you know, that happens. Um, it's hard to get people either to, in the extreme case, not to do, so, you know, to, to, uh, I'm going to model not doing a behavior. You can do that, but it's difficult. And then secondly, um, there's just, I mean, if money is speech, I mean, there's just no, there's no one out there um, pushing very hard to have you eat apples rather than fries. So how does the business world deal with the, and, and I'm asking this question from a naive point of view because it's not my world, how does the business world deal with the ethics or morality of this kind of thing? So, for example, there aren't many people in the world other than the ones working at Burger King, I'm assuming, that would, that would have a Whopper for breakfast as a positive social development. Um, right. So how does, within the company or within that world or the advertisers that are running the Whopper for breakfast campaign, does the morality or ethics or the consequences of this to the population ever come up or become part of the discussion? Well, you know, I, I, I know a little, I know some of these people, not all, I certainly know we're near all of them, but it's my view that a couple of things happen. One, there, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of self-deception about it. I mean, there's a lot of uh, enormous rationalizing about not only is this my job, but, you know, really this is, if you really look at it, I mean, it's an egg and it's this, it's really, you know, it's, it's, uh, maybe it's healthy. And people will, will do a lot of work to justify what they do. Um, I do think some people worry about it more than others. But if um, it's been, you know, called code switching, so I mean, it, when you're at home talking to your kids and you're an executive, you may talk one way, but when you go in and work with your other marketing colleagues, you're often not want to be the first one to uh, say the emperor has no clothes. Okay. Well, it's very interesting discussion. So that would imply that if these practices are going to change, there has to be pressure from outside the industry rather than impetus for change within. Right. I mean, I you know, I, I've, I'm, I don't. Um, I just don't see a path where a lot of these companies are going to do this on their own. Um, some will. There are socially conscious people in marketing. There are socially conscious companies. Um, but I, in general, I, I think there's a reason we have regulation. I think people, uh, is a, people uh, have a hard time sometimes doing the right thing without some institutional force behind it. You know, I'd like to ask about one more practice that I've heard you talk about that I found fascinating, and then I'd like to come back 
and discuss what we might do about the issue of food-related marketing. But you talked about the industry being very successful at shaping memories. What do you mean by that? Well, there's, there's in, particularly in service industries, there's, um, and it's not quite as, as dramatic as I guess as that sounds, but it's a term that's used sometimes. And that is that, um, well, McDonald's was one of the first to use what they called transformational advertising, and that's in television. And the idea uh, was that um, you could actually, by showing, when McDonald's, this is back in the 70s, if McDonald's showed perfect trips to McDonald's over and over and over, friendly staff, cl- everything clean, wonderful, that after enough exposures, that memory gets linked to your actual experiences and it tends to shape your memory. So the idea was that when you went to McDonald's, it, it actually transformed your experience there. And then after leaving McDonald's, your memory of a McDonald's experience, the, the advertised memories and the, um, the ones you actually did over time tend to get jumbled. Um, Beth Loftus, a very famous psychologist, and some others have done all this pioneering work on false memories and have extended this to brands to where she can get people to remember childhood experiences with, or even recent, you know, a year ago experiences with brands that don't exist. And it's quite easy to do. I guess by, by definition, marketing is manipulative in that it's intended to manipulate the world so that you want more products and things like that. But this business about shaping memories seems especially manipulative that, you know, you go to a a fast food restaurant or you buy a product and you have a certain experience with it. And then you'd be in a position to decide whether you want more of it. But then the marketing you're exposed to changes your perception, your memory of that experience. Right. And I get, you know, it's it's not always successful. Right. So, like, um, there has to be some general agreement between these things. For example, the airlines have tried doing this. And service on an airline is just so horrific that no memory shaping in the world gets people to think it was a good experience. Um, but for things like uh, theme parks, uh, cruise lines, things where it's an experiential uh, product that's being offered a service, these kinds of effort of sending you a video of a perfect trip to a theme park or sending you... Um, a recording you and your family made and intermingling these things over time in memory um, do seem to have some, some, or getting some traction by some marketers. Well, the example you used uh, as you were talking about this concept mm-hmm. was McDonald's. So does the food industry use this in, in ways that would make you recollect how much you like something in a way that would make you want it more because you've remembered liking it more than you really did? It works really, it works pretty well in television, like I say, if the actual experience and the, the one that's advertised isn't just widely divergent. And yeah, the food industry uh, does this. You know, you like to watch a lot of food ads uh, where people are consuming. They, um, these are, are very positive things that are put in episodic memory that can be retrieved, and they get linked up with, you know, your own. And so what we've learned about how fluid memory is is that, you know, marketers can, to some degree, shape how you remember things. 
Oh, that's so interesting. So let's talk a little bit about what might be done. If we begin with a premise that the population is eating too much unhealthy food and that marketing is one of the contributing factors to that, one could approach it in a number of different ways, but two fundamentally different ways would be to try to train people to resist it or to get government to regulate it. So this idea of telling people about the tricks of the industry and what the industry is intending to do to them and things like that, uh, which is sometimes called media literacy. What do you think the potential for that is? I like media literacy. I wish there was more of it. Um, I think uh, until you get schools, you know, K through 12 and and beyond, you know, sort of uh, putting some money and resources, which they don't, you know, obviously have much of right now, into these kind of things, um, they're going to be very spotty kind of efforts, but I, I think they do work. Um, Industry-wise... Um, well, let me ask a question about that. Um, let's say media literacy has some traction and has mm-hmm. some impact on people. We don't know how great so far, but let's just say there is some. How could we ever imagine enough of it being funded to actually counteract what industry is spending to move people in the other direction? Well, I think you, there you'd have to take a lesson from um, um, what happened with with tobacco, where you get the industry to fund education to some extent, or um, at least put into some kind of large fund uh, things where a, a regulatory body could decide how to do it. Um, food's a very profitable uh, industry, and I, these are companies that um, they won't like it necessarily, but could afford um, to do this. And actually, if I was advising them, and I'd tell them it's, it's, I think, in the long term, good business for them, because I think um, when you talk to these people, there is a sense of inevitability that some kind of change is coming. And rather than feeling like a victim, maybe it'd be better to agree to some kind of progressive notion of, of putting money into a fund uh, for meaningful media education. Well, that would be akin to um, differences between the tobacco and alcohol industry. The alcohol industry is I, apparently they're funding it on the, and they have lots of these designated drivers and drink safely and responsibly built into their marketing campaigns because uh, I think they, my impression is that they learn a lot from the tobacco experience and think that they can fight off regulation by preemptively doing some of these things. Yeah, I think um, the beer industry in particular, I think, has been pretty smart about, um, you know, and you can, d- depending on your, you know, your politics or your level of cynicism, or you can either think it was just a ploy, or you can think it was very sincere, but I think they've done it f- for whatever motive. I think they've done a pretty good job of um, certainly leaving us with the impression of some some real corporate citizenship. Uh, I think Azar Bush has been particularly good at this. Now you you mentioned if something like this were to be done, an educational campaign somehow funded by industry, that you wouldn't want to count on them doing it themselves, but the money would go to some objective body that could really do it right. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't leave it up to them. Um, I mean, and don't get the wrong impression. I mean, there are some very good people in business, but I, I would prefer you have some kind of third-party kind of uh, advisory board or something that, uh, th- that do this in an informed, fair, objective way. 
um, one concept that uh, we've discussed earlier today, not in this podcast, but when you were speaking at the Rudd Center, was this third-person bias that people have about marketing. Would you mind explaining the, what that concept means? Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a long body of research that basically shows that uh, people believe that other people are affected by media, in particular advertising, but they're not. Um, it's sort of like a, a personal immunity myth. They, they believe that we, we ought to, um, those other people out there just really buy some dumb things because they're affected by advertising. But I bought the same things because I'm smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also tends to be kind of socioeconomically, the pe- people that are actually the most educated tend to have the biggest bias on it. You know, I found that in a course I taught. Um, several years ago, I gave a questionnaire to students. This was a food-related course uh, before the semester began, and asked them how much they thought the general, how much, how much they thought other people were affected by advertising, and how much they were. And that third-party bias came out loud and clear. And so, it, it seems to me this is one barrier to taking any action against marketing, regulatory action, let's say, because if people feel that they're immune from it, but other people are responsive to it then why would government need to get involved? Because it's these other weak people that are falling victim to it, and there's something wrong with them because they're weak and I'm strong. Does that strike you as one of the barriers? And if that's so, what might be done to change the way people view advertising? Oh, it's, it's absolutely a barrier, and, and, and I think it's been a, a very successful line of rhetoric by lobbyists protecting industries. Uh, it, it it make you know if you know that bias exists and you kind of leverage it to forestall regulation or something it's very effective i think if you go to law, to policymakers and you explain this and you can somehow create the political will um to actually af- affect some change things can change but as of now, there's just not enough political capital uh, to move as far as I'd like to see, as quick as I'd like to see. So uh, I'd like you to prognosticate a little bit, knowing that none of us can do that and uh, that I'm asking you to just make your best guess about what might happen in the future. But if we look at food marketing at this moment in time, there's a tremendous amount of, of it. There's a lot of criticism of it. Uh, the industry, of course, defends its right to do it, and there, that's written into law. Um, there doesn't seem to be much change going on, uh, although the industry is promising that they'll regulate it. The, the industry players will regulate themselves. Uh, they don't appear to be making a lot of progress, and children especially are still overwhelmed with advertisements for unhealthy food. Where would you see this going? What do you think trends in the future might be? Well, you know, I've... As I said before, I tend to be an optimist. I I do think, um, if you look at this historically, every time, you can take this across the entire 20th century, every time advertising was about to be significantly regulated, the industry took a a very predictable stance. And they came out and said, we're going to self-regulate like never before. And they stopped several significant regulatory efforts. This time, I think food, because it involves children, and something we can all just experience in our everyday reality that, with obesity, that I do think we're reaching one of those sort of Gladwell kind of tipping points on this issue. I think that there will be 
over the next 10 years. Um, significant movement on this. I, what I, I suspect is one or two companies will decide uh, it's in their best interest to be uh, first movers on this and will do something very visible, how significant will have to be seen. But that will kind of break the logjam. And I, I think, depending on how a few elections go, you're, you're going to see a more active uh, active government um, on the issue of obesity, with, with children at least. Adults is a harder issue. Now, it'll be interesting to see the extent to which that comes true and, and – um, I share some of your optimism about the way things are trending, but we'll, as I said, we'll just have to see. Now, one interesting case in point has happened recently with the beverage companies where the the PepsiCo CEO, Indra Nui, has been um, criticized in the press, I mean, or by, or by some shareholders, because they were spending more money marketing healthier versions of their products. Their flagship brand, Pepsi, declined in the marketplace and became the third best-selling sugared beverage, I mean, or beverage behind Coke and Diet Coke. And then uh, there were some statements from the company about returning to their core brands and core values and things like that. Now, wouldn't that be an example of progressive behavior getting punished rather than encouraged? And what's it going to take for a couple of leaders to go out and do this sort of thing? They might feel it's in their best interest, but they have to get rewarded by shareholders and the press and things like that. Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, I think um, there, there, some of this is framing. If you can frame this issue in a good way, because so, the shareholders frame this as you're ignoring the flagship rather than in a positive framing that you're advancing health or something. I think um, just as in any kind of politics, the the politics of of this involves how this issue is framed and its importance. I do think um, had Pepsi made more of, of their efforts um, on these other things and framed it a little better, maybe this wouldn't have happened. It would be wonderful if there were some way to um, be able to highlight the progressive behavior and support it so that uh, the CEOs have some cover for doing right. these things and being the ones who make the pioneering changes. Well, thank you very much. It's been wonderful hearing from you on oh, these, thank you. these issues regarding such a delight marketing. to be here. Thank you. Good. Thanks again. Um, our guest today was Professor Thomas O'Gwen, Professor of Marketing at the University of Wisconsin School of Business and Research Fellow at the Center for Brand and Product Management. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org where you'll find all sorts of information on food and food policy issues, alerts about things that are breaking, an email newsletter that gets dispatched monthly at no charge, of course, uh, and a variety of other podcasts that have been recorded with excellent guests who visited the Rudd Center. Thank you.